Hey guys, welcome back to Screenwriter Survival Guide. Today, we're doing something pretty special. Way back in season one of the guide, I had my friend Axel Arzola on to talk about the development process. And this year, I went on his amazing show, High Level with Axel Arzola, and discussed the process of writing your first screenplay, among other things. Now, I thought his episode of Screenwriter Survival Guide was fantastic, and he was a big fan of my episode on High Level. In that spirit, we've decided to give our listeners something special. So today, I'm bringing you my full episode of High Level, right here on this feed, and he's dropping his episode of Screenwriter Survival Guide on his feed at the same time. So make sure to keep listening to hear my full episode of High Level. I may not be completely unbiased, but I think there's a useful tidbit or two in there. And when you're done, make sure to go listen to Axel's episode of Screenwriter Survival Guide over on the High Level feed. Now without any further ado, guys, on to the episode. just keep writing because every script you're gonna get better and so i think every script i've written i either realize it's not worth it quicker and quicker every time and like scrap it or i'm like okay no i, I can see this is better i can see this is better just putting more guardrails on your writing is the best way to get good like better results tell me how was the process of writing your very first feature my very first feature. Ooh. It was not very good at the end, but it was an important process. I basically, I was working for Tom um, at Impact Theory. And kind of when I first came out to LA, I had this idea that, you know, it was all in the future. I was going to be a screenwriter in the future. It was fine. I was working, working you know, at Impact Theory at the time. And that was, that was all I was doing. And that was fine. And then slowly as I started to actually like listen to more of what Tom was saying, I started to realize, wait a sec, I actually have to be not... I actually have to be writing and, and doing what I want to do if I, you know, if I want to have a you know, prayer in hell of breaking into this incredibly difficult industry. Mm-hmm. So I got started working on my first script, and I basically said, I'm just going to do three pages a night, and that was it. Three was, pages a night, mm-hmm. and that was it? Yeah. I was going to do three pages a night you know every... That one page a night is already like super difficult. I mean, I, I, think it, I think it's a personal thing, personally. I think it, like, it all depends. I write very fast, and... Sometimes I wonder if I'm sacrificing quality doing that, but um, I, that's the only way I, I know how to write. I can't physically spend that much time on a page. So I just like, when I write, I can sometimes write like six pages in an hour if I'm really, like, if I'm really in the Holy zone. Holy smokes. And then some days it's like I get, I get to three and it's like three hours of like crunching at a computer like it's painful. Yeah, I usually, I write pretty fast. Um, and then a lot of it gets pared down later, a lot of it gets pared away later. And the first script that I wrote, it was called Stopped. Um, it was kind of an interesting premise, I think, but a terrible execution. And it was basically uh, a world where uh, everything, time stops, um, but okay. some people keep on living in a stopped world. And so it was kind of a post-apocalyptic film, but all within one instant. Like the, the space between an instant when like some subsect of the population, call it 10,000 people on the entire planet, were able to keep on living. And it was... I think that, that that is a very kind of that premise is is ripe for for doing something with it, but I think what I did with it was not good. What I did with it was just like uh, just a very run of the mill like YA movie that like nobody's making anymore and was not very good. And I took 
Who, do you know who it was who said, maybe it's Stephen King, who said, write your first script, then go out in the backyard, and bury it, and never look at it again? And I just, whoever said that, I love, love that quote. And so I did that. I wrote it. I think, my, I think the whole first script was like 200 pages that I wrote. It was 200 like, pages? Yeah, it was really not the right, like, it was not reformatted correctly. It wasn't like, it, nothing was correct about it. But yeah, I haven't looked at that since. Yeah, my first one, I think I could barely break 60 pages. And yeah. here you're like, <laughs> 200 pages. Well, no, there was another movie that, because like the second feature I did, because I've written mostly uh, pilots and stuff, but the second feature I did uh, was very much that, where I was like struggling. Like I, I you know, beat sheeted it out using the save the cat method. And I was, I was like struggling to get it to 60 pages. I was like, I have to get, at least get it to an hour. Come on. Like if it's not an hour, it's not a movie. Like, like it's not even a feature. I got to just like at least get it to this. And I was really struggling. I think I got it like 58 pages. And I was like, fuck it. That's the, that's the most I can do. What about so, the yeah. pilots then? Hmm. So did you start the first long form thing that you wrote? Was it the feature or did you have pilots before the feature? So it was the feature. And coming off the feature, I was very much like, well, what do I do now? Because I'd work because that took me like probably four or five months to write that. That's still pretty um, fast. Yeah, I think, yes. But to me, since I hadn't really written that much, since like I wrote one pilot in college um, before that. and Did you study writing in college? Yes. I okay. studied creative writing um, kind of with a focus in screenwriting at a little tiny college in Dublin called the American College of Dublin. And I was there for one year, got an internship out here um, at Impact Theory for the summer, um, came out for the summer, <clears throat> got hired at Impact Theory in the summer, and I kind of left college. So I'd written one pilot, <laughs> um, which was, uh, it was actually, you know, it was pretty good for the, it was for what it was for, for a first pilot, it was pretty good. Um, but when I went back to writing five months seemed like forever because I'd like done four or five months on this one feature and it, it seemed like forever. So the next project I worked on was a pilot that I think it, it was definitely, a, it was a very clear improvement. Like if I can look, you know, they say you just keep writing because every script you're going to get better. And I have seen that to be the case. I think every script I've written for the most part, I either realize it's not worth it quicker and quicker every time and like scrap it quicker and quicker. Um, or I'm like, okay, no, I, I can see this is better. I can see this is better. Just my physical, how I'm writing the prose in the action lines uh, is better. And kind of the overarching kind of the, the theme, the thematic connections, the characters, the kind of Mr. X, everything is better um, from time to time. The clearest example of that was when I went from my first feature into my first pilot, my second pilot was the clearest like jump to, oh, okay, this is, this is markedly better. I can definitely tell that this is a better pilot. So you and I met uh, through mutual friends. Mm -hmm. We go to a dinner party. Uh, they tell me, oh, he's a, he's a writer. We start talking about mm -hmm. that. You send me your script. Every time I meet a writer, I'm like, send me your stuff. I'm, I'm always mm -hmm. trying to read and I'm always trying to find new writers. Yeah. So I got your pilot. I read it the next day. Freaking amazing. I couldn't <laughs> put it down. Like I sat down and like got it down uh, really quick. Mm -hmm. uh, it felt very much like I could see it in my head, mm -hmm. like the world that you were creating, the characters, everything. It was very interesting. How many pilots did you write until you wrote that one that I read first? So I think 2019 was my year where I just really churned out pilots. So I wrote, I think I, that was like, I finished the feature in that year and I wrote, I think three pilots that I was like, these are good. And that I think, uh, after death was the third pilot I did that year. But I also, during the first part of COVID, um, when I was living back in New Hampshire with my family, I basically went through and took that pilot and I took my first pilot and I, um, kind of 
not I didn't overhaul them, but I I like really took a solid look at them and like started to like seriously like um figure out what their problems were and uh kind of rewrite them, do a lot of rewriting on them. So I did kind of have a that was my first pilot and then there was kind of a after death V2, this which is what you read. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So in your case when you're going at for because TV and features are two different monsters, mm-hmm. do you prefer one or the other? I think I prefer TV both TV almost always TV. I think I prefer TV because uh, a, I just like the story elements better. I don't like having to wrap everything up perfectly in a ribbon by the end of like 90 pages. Um, that's something that really frustrates me when I'm writing uh, features. And I also prefer them because they're shorter. So you can get that, like, I think part of writing, especially when you're first starting out, like I'm still first starting out, and um, just writing a lot of stuff very quickly. Or not very quickly necessarily, but just getting a lot of different stuff done and experimenting because there's definitely something to be said for having an idea executing on that idea and moving moving on instead of like just taking one idea and just going over it again and again and again and again and it's it takes way longer to write a feature than it does to write a pilot and for that reason I prefer TV now I do think features have their place I'm writing a feature right now because I want to go out and whether it's this year I have some the personal stuff I'm going through this year, so I don't know if it's going to happen, but this year or next year, I want to direct this feature. I prefer features for that reason because you can actually go out and execute on them much quicker with yourself. You can't really go shoot a pilot. I mean, you could. I have a friend who's actually trying to shoot an yeah. entire series himself, but it's much, much like, it's like, what's the point of shooting a pilot? Because it's, it's inherently a, a part of something, but you can shoot a feature and if it ends up good, you can submit it to festivals, you can potentially get representation, you can potentially get distribution for it. Mm-hmm. That's the benefit of features, but in terms of like, if I'm just going to write something, I prefer TV, TV every time. Yeah. yeah, I definitely don't recommend going out and doing a pilot for mm-hmm. TV on your own. I did it with some friends mm-hmm. several years ago and it ended up being like a long short film. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the resources and then for TV, it's almost like you can't really put it anywhere. Yeah. Like if you yeah, just have the pilot, yeah. what are you going to do? You can't like, you can't really submit it to film festivals. I mean, there no. might be some that accept They them, have but. created categories in film festivals for yeah. TV pilots, which in my opinion, mm-hmm. they're bogus. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Well, it's like, what, what are you going to do with that? It's like, it, it, even if you win a film festival, they're not going to just take that pilot and, and it, turn it, it's just a short film. It's just it might you might as well do a short film and then do the, the same method there. So you have a short film, someone picks it up, and then they like option it into a series. Then you make a series of it. You're not. It's it's the same process because you're just going to basically end up taking that pilot and doing it over again. Whereas a feature, like no one's going to be like that. This is the pilot we want to get all the same people back and do the series now. Like a feature, you know, you can actually, no one's going to ask you to redo your feature after a film festival. They're just going to, if they like it, they're going to buy it and put it in theaters or put it on Netflix or whatever. And so I think, yeah, for, for practicality's sake, I think it's, it's good to have a mix of both in my opinion, but I know a lot of people disagree with that. And a lot of people say, it yeah, I did hear one story that was pretty cool. Um, I forget again who it was, but it was two writers <clears throat> and they actually went and they shot their pilot. Um, and then had it put it on public access in LA public access. This was in the nineties. You couldn't really do it now. It wouldn't be it wouldn't have the same benefit. But they put it was in Was it the people that were doing it about the prison? You know who it was? It was the people who made you know that movie Dark Waters? No. It's a movie I think Mark Ruffalo's in it. 
um, it's about um, the Teflon. You know, Teflon's the thing in, in like a, a... Plastic, right? Yeah, it's like, but it's super deadly. And it was basically this, this movie about undercover Teflon or something. It was the writers who made that. It was their first thing. They're kind of, they broke in by this. So they did a pilot. They um, released it on public access. And then they dropped flyers all throughout Beverly Hills. Um, saying, just, just like, yeah, somewhere. saying like, go, you know, if you're an agent, if you're a manager, go. But this was before the internet. This is before the internet. You could never do that now. Yeah. Like it, and everyone's, that's like one of the negative things about the internet is everyone is doing there stunts is like this. There's nothing negative about the internet, Sam. Fair enough. Just joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, now people, what people do now is they do web series. And I think mm -hmm. there's a, there's a place for that. You need a lot of luck, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, you need to make something good. Yeah. And then you need to get lucky and go viral. Mm -hmm. I feel like by the time you put all the energy and effort into writing a web series and shooting a web series mm -hmm. and doing posts, yeah. you might as well use all of that time and energy to do a, a low-budget feature. So, I don't know. What do you think about that? You did a, a small web series. I did a web series. It was super low-budget. I had one, one or two crew members... Um, And we shot it in my bedroom during COVID. And uh, it came out pretty well for, for my level of, because I'm a, mostly a writer. So my, my directing is, you know, leaves mm -hmm. a lot to be desired. I'm getting everything I've done. I've gotten better. But mm -hmm. for me, it was, it was, it was uh, good for me. I, I think I see what you're saying about that. I do think if you want to be in TV, I think it, web series has its benefits because if you just, I prefer, my mind usually works in episodic stories. So mm -hmm. Then try if I have an episodic story and I try to then take that episodic story and shove it into a yeah, feature, it's course. not going to work. Yeah, it's my producer yeah. head is just right. thinking if we're going to make something and it's going to take this long mm -hmm. to shoot to edit, you might as well do that as a feature. Yeah. It's easier to get distribution for a feature. Right. But yeah, I can see what you're and saying. Yeah, no, that's what I was saying earlier. Like I definitely prefer writing features if you want to actually execute on them. But sometimes, like with this project you're talking about, it was definitely like I had this idea of like oh asymptomatic like someone goes through like severe depression like from social isolation when they're you know when they have an asymptomatic case of covid and they're stuck in their home but everyone else is is out and able to kind of open up in the world again and they're already kind of all of their uh kind of energy is received from like social praise and you know uh, social validation from everywhere and so that makes it much more difficult they they turn inward and start to have they uh basically the negative voice of this person is mm -hmm. is exemplified by used condom um And that's kind of the, the idea of the story. It's a little tongue-in-cheek. But um, that was definitely an episodic story. I didn't really want... It wasn't enough for a feature. You know, it wasn't long enough for a feature. Like, totally, all five episodes total about 20 minutes um, of, that, of that project. So um, for that project, it was definitely web series. But I, I definitely agree. From, like, a production standpoint, it definitely makes more sense to have... To be a, a feature if you want to just get something made. Gotcha. So when you first came to LA, that was about 2019. Mm -hmm. And then COVID happened right away no 20 so i came 2018 summer of 2018 so i was here for about a year and a half before before everything, everything shut down yeah gotcha mm -hmm. so tell me a little bit about your your experience coming to la i just had a call the other day with a young filmmaker and he was trying to ask me questions about like do i need to be in la to mm -hmm. to make it like people are telling me that it's a good idea uh what's your take on that mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's being forced to change because of some personal things I've just sh I shared with you and I'm, I'll share on the podcast. I'm actually leaving LA for a while for at least the end of 2022. Um, I'm probably going to be, I'll be back and I have a, a film that's going to have a premiere this summer. So I'll be back for that. Um, but I just want to do, this is going to be my year of just doing crazy shit because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm 23 and I think before I, 
you know, sell a pilot or get on a get on a staff, get staffed in a room. It's good to just like Live. do some be kid for a little while because I really wasn't a kid because I like kind of I did college for one year, came here, and I've been really hustling ever since that. So I kind of want to do one year where I'm just like doing crazy shit all around. I'm hoping that that is not. I kind of I have to believe that that is not going to uh, impede my ability to. Um, a, to, to make it in this business. I don't want to live in LA forever. Um, I, you are in love with this city, and that's amazing. Yeah. I am not in love with this city. It's really good light, yeah. good location, yeah. and good people. <laughs> it, it, it has all three of those things, yes. I, I grew up in cold. You grew up in a warm climate, so yeah. this is probably kind of more homey to you. Like yeah. I grew up in a cold place, so I was just in Utah, and that's where I'm going for the next couple months is Utah. And um, I grew up on the East Coast, not in Utah, but um, I... Uh, I love the cold, and it feels that feels homey to me. The cold, and then in the summer, the humidity and the feel, the smell of humidity, um, uh, the just super wet, clean beaches are like that's what feels like home to me. So um, I don't have this kind of super personal like love of Los Angeles, um, but I probably will end up here for a, a significant portion of my life. And for a long time, I did believe that you had to be in LA um, if you wanted to make it in this business, like. My, the very first episode of my podcast was called Why Every Screenwriter Has to Move to L.A. And I'm kind of forcing myself to come around on that issue because I realized I don't want to live here my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to be a screenwriter. So I'm going to have to figure out how to, you know, um, thread that needle and figure that one out. Gotcha. Uh, I think definitely it's changing during COVID. And uh, over the last couple of years, it's definitely changed. I have friends who are in rooms that none of the uh, in writers rooms that none of the rooms want to go back. None of the rooms want to go back in person. People want to be remote forever. Um, even at Impact Theory, I know several of the employees at Impact Theory are now remote, and they're living out of like Tennessee and uh, other places around the country. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that stays for for at least some some of it. I think it's definitely going to be harder if you're not in LA to like the soft connections. You know, like like when we met you, when I met you, and I gave you my script, and that's how we you know found our our got a, started our relationship. Those things are going to be way harder to do outside of Los Angeles. There's no doubt about that. I think definitely there is a change now that people are more open to the idea of working remote. I, I don't know if it's going to change. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. in the future. To me, I still prefer like this. Yeah. And when you're breaking story and I mean, to shoot, you have to be in the room. Mm-hmm. And eventually, if you're like, if I'm shooting your pilot yeah. and I'm there with the actors yeah. and I'm working on the scene and I need you. Yeah. Well, I'll be there when we're shooting the pilot. But yeah. that's, that's the thing. Like, when you're shooting something, that's different. Like, I'll come mm-hmm. to L.A. and stay for a few months, you know? Mm-hmm. My, my kind of goal, my always my kind of dream um, is that I would live somewhere abroad and come to L.A. once every two months, take all my meetings uh, that need to be in person, go, you know, go, go at all the parties, and then you know, go do all back stuff. to your whole... Go and, back, and yeah, go and back then, like, yeah, and then if I have to come for a few months to shoot a film or to, to be on set for a series, um, I'll come for that I'll, I'll be there for these couple months and then i'll go back and that's just my let's i grew up traveling around my family you know lived we weren't like nomadic but we like every couple years we'd spend a year abroad my dad works online so when he uh, whenever he could take us out of school put us on uh, homeschooling and it was fine that's just kind of how i was raised and i i'm realizing more and more recently that i need that in my life like that's mm-hmm. something that, that feeds me but if you were 19 again and you mm-hmm. were thinking about going after a career in screenwriting, do you think people should move here or not? Yes. Yes. Now, if they have to move here, what are some pointers and like 
with a little bit of your story and how mm -hmm. things worked out for you and how would you do it if you had to do it again in mm -hmm. 2022? If you're in college, um, it's great to try and get a summer internship or do a semester abroad in LA, anything like that. Uh, those things are super helpful because it gets you here, it gets you a community of people you're already with. And those things, at least for me, as someone who's a little more introverted, are super important. So I know a lot of colleges have either like exchange programs with colleges in LA or some universities, Emerson College has a campus out here and I know other universities have campuses out in Los Angeles. So if you can, if you're lucky enough to get one of those, that's amazing. Um, but even if you don't, if, you, if you're not able to get that, um, I think you should still come out. I think when you come out, it's, it's very important to get to build a community around you. Because there's no point being out here if you're not going to have a community. And how do you do that? Because I hear yeah. people say that all the time. Right. How do you do that? Yeah. So I do have some tips. So the first thing, when I first moved here, I moved to this place called Upstart. And Upstart is this kind of extended stay youth hostel for creatives. So for actors, writers, musicians, producers, everyone who basically is new to L.A. or uh, you know, is, is struggling with money and needs a place to stay that's cheap and with other creatives. And that place was amazing for development. I met my, my ex-boyfriend there. I met a ton of people I've continued to work on projects with, a ton of friends. So it's been great as a community of uh, collaborators and also as a community of um, just friends. In Because uh, it can be hard to move to a new city, especially a new city where it's so spread out and you need a car to go everywhere, so it's very isolating. Um, having that community is very important. So Upstart uh, or another kind of community like that when you're living with people. And if you're not going to be living with people, I think, uh, or if you're not going to be living in one of those kind of community stay uh, places. And how those would work is you'd have basically eight bunks per bedroom. So it was really like a dorm. Eight Yeah. It's crazy. It's not for or eight people. Eight people. Yeah, eight people. So four bunk beds. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. It was crazy. It, it was, it's not for everyone and it's not forever. You don't want to be there forever. Um, I was there for probably like four months and that was probably good. I was done by the end of that, yeah. but I'd already gotten one the month, benefits guys. of it. Do one month. Because the other perks of it are there's always people leaving. There's always people moving out um, and people move out together. And so a lot of, a lot of times you'll end up getting an apartment with people uh, also from, from, there. from there. Yeah. Gotcha. So those things are definitely, you have to be okay to like, I'm going to just like kind of live in grunge a little bit for yeah, a little I think bit. But if you're 19 and you're yeah. coming to LA to mm -hmm. live the dream, yeah. I think that's a very good way yeah. to start. I'd, I had never heard about mm -hmm. that, but I think yeah. it's a really good idea. And yeah, Upstart is specifically designed for like creatives, so it's a great place to network. But there's other ones. There's Eddy, E-D-D-Y, um, Common. Uh, there's other ones that aren't designed for creatives, but they're, they'll give you the same sense of community. And if you're not going to do one of those, if that's not your style, totally get it. Go on like Facebook Marketplace To, to find a room, so don't just get an apartment by yourself or with move out with someone and get an apartment with them unless they're like, or one of you is like a crazy social butterfly. Like getting an apartment with other people that um, like, as like as many as you're comfortable with. Like getting, like finding as many other people, preferably people who've been in LA for a while uh, can bring you to those communities is going to be super helpful. And then even if you're in, don't do Postmates, don't do Postmates, don't do Uber, do like, go to Starbucks. Like if you, if you have to get like kind of a, a stopgap job and just get like a job in the retail business or something, go to Starbucks. Why Starbucks? It, it doesn't have to be Starbucks, but go to any of those like uh, places where you're with other people um, because everyone 
in LA is trying to make it in this business. It's, it's bizarre. It's the one city in the world where you can walk down the street, any street in the city, and someone will be talking about camera angles yeah. or the Ari Alexa or something. It's, it's bizarre. You can never find it anywhere else in the world, and it is constant here. So if you are one of the four baristas at Starbucks, at least two of the other ones are going to be like Either screenwriters, actors, actors, musicians. Yeah. My, I am... Uh, I, my roommate is actually a writer who's written on popular shows before, and she also works at Starbucks as well. So, like, people, like, real, you'll make connections with, like, not just people who are just starting out, but people who, like, have been in the business for a while and are taking a break from it or whatever. You can make a lot of connections like that. And that's why I say don't do Postmates, don't do, don't do anything else. That's I, a really yeah. good idea. And I worked, I also would say I worked um, at Valet, like, as Valet Parking for the Ellen Show for a while. When I first, or not when I first got here, but after I left Impact Theory. And that was amazing because not only did it build that community, but also like we parked the car, we were parking for the audience at the Ellen show. So we would park cars from like 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Then we had nothing to do until about 4 p.m. And then we'd like get cars from 4 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. And then so there was all this time I could just write in the middle of the day, just like sit and write. For, and you have to be okay being outside in the heat and doing it, but yeah. I could just bring my laptop and write for four solid hours. I could then park the cars, write for another hour, hour and a half. It was amazing. And so if you're going to do, uh, so find a job with people and find a job that is going to give you as much like downtime as possible. You also have to get a boss that's okay with that and or a boss that's not present. But those kind of things are really helpful. Yeah. Thank you, Ellen, for allowing Sam to write <laughs> on the downtime. So once you have the script ready, what do you do? Because I think there's a lot of content out there about, you know, writing and do this and the scene and the characters. And mm-hmm. we know all that. But then what? That's a good question because that is a question I'm still struggling with as well is what do you do? So I think when you're first starting out, you put it in a drawer. Well, I think, you know, I, are you saying after you've gotten notes? Is this like first draft? Are you saying the script is polished? You are ready. You could shoot this tomorrow in your opinion. I think first draft. Finish your first draft, Mm -hmm. what do you do? Because I think before you come to LA, I would recommend you write Mm -hmm. and you come here with something. Mm -hmm. Don't come here saying, I want to be a writer. Mm -hmm. Have a few scripts. That's a good point. Yeah. You want, and the most important thing, write. Like, write every day. I don't write on the weekends, but every weekday, um, write or every weekend. It does, and if you can't do every day, you know, make a plan. Make sure you're writing progressive, like at a, a consistent increments. You're producing pages, because that is the number one thing that I've heard from um, like executives and producers and stuff. Is they'll people will say, "Oh, I want to be a writer," and then someone will offer to read them, and they'll be like, "Oh, I don't have anything," or they'll have something yeah. and it's a terrible first draft of something they wrote four years ago in high school, and that you just you need to be constantly writing because it's just like we were talking about at the beginning. You're iterating on your craft all the time. Yeah, so I always leave the draft for a few days. Like after I finish my first draft, I don't touch it for probably about a week. If I finish it on the Wednesday, I Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, don't touch it. Um, then I'll usually go back through and I'll just read through it and you know grammar tweaks, little line changes, things like that. I'll make like little little tweaks to it like that, and that usually takes two or three days for a, a pilot, maybe a week for a feature. And then at the end of that week, I will send it out to people. And I try not to just in it because I write 
I, I, I produce drafts at a, a reasonable pace, so probably like once every month or two. At an extremely fast pace, <laughs> may I add, I cannot keep up with Sam and his drafts. I'm always behind trying to read on the projects that we're working on. I do. I produce pages pretty quickly. And um, so I try to kind of, um, especially if it's a sample, with something like you, there's no, there's no real option. Like we're working on a project together, yeah. so I have to send it to you every time. Yeah. But when I'm when I'm having like a new sample going, I'll I'll usually kind of alternate who I send it to. So I'll have like I have a bench of probably five or six people that I'll send drafts to, and I try to send it to like two or three of them per script, mm-hmm. and make sure that I'm not just like every month being like, here, read this, here, read this, here, read this. Um, so I'll probably send it to two or three people and ask for notes. Now, ideally, you don't touch it when you're waiting for the notes to come back. I'm not amazing at that. So sometimes I will go and like make tweaks to it um, while I'm waiting for, for notes. But eventually notes come back, and I usually try to correspond when the notes come back um, with doing one read-through and not, not um, like editing the script, but doing a read-through of it um, just to get, my, get like fresh eyes on it. Okay. And so I have my notes then and like at least two other people's notes of what they want changed. Um, so then I have three sets of notes, and then I kind of go through the notes, and I address them. And that's kind of how I do my drafting process. It starts over again. Um, until basically, until no one has any notes, or until I'm feeling like the notes I'm getting are like not helpful anymore. Mm-hmm. Usually I probably go around seven or eight drafts for a sample. Um, obviously, like, Johnny in my movie uh, is... 30 drafts deep or something like that, but I probably like five, six, seven, something like that is when I'm done. And then after that, uh, when you're first starting out, I think you put it in a drawer and you can get started on the next one. Um, when you're kind of, if, if you think this is something you actually want to make, I would send it to someone like you or Katrina and be like, hey, like, or I, I wouldn't just probably send it to you out of the blue, but I'd be like, hey, is I have this idea, uh, I have this script, um, send a log line or a little bit of information about it and say, what do you think about this? So you mentioned uh, Johnny mm-hmm. Johnny Santana. He's another uh, filmmaker friend of ours. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this project and how has been the process. Because you mentioned thirty drafts. Yeah, in that's been a long that's process. A lot. Yeah, and I'm actually doing uh, another season of my podcast um, that is going to kind of air later in the year when when that film's coming out. Um, that's kind of a, a blow by blow breakdown of how you kind of go from script to screen. And so it's going to be each episode, um, it's going to focus on a different aspect of the filmmaking process. Uh, plug over. Now, um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that basically started when Johnny kind of asked me to read one of his scripts. And that was probably December 2019, I believe, that he said that. And I read it and I kind of gave him a lot of notes because it needed a lot of work done. And I kind of, I was like, hey, I'll do a pass for you if you want. Um, and I, I did that because I like the project and also because I like Johnny and I know Johnny makes stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like another thing is like surround yourself with people who actually make stuff because it's really, a lot of, there's a lot of talk. And if pe- people who make stuff are like, and they say you're gonna make it, they're going to make your thing, they're going to make your thing. And so I really, I'd been kind of looking for a way to get, you know, get uh, working with Johnny for a while. And he sent me the script and I was like, it needs work, but I'm ha- I, I see the promise here. It's interesting. Um, it's kind of a cool story. I would be happy to, to do a pass. And he said, well, let's just write it together. And so we basically, we did the whole like save the cat beat sheet at first and put all our uh, cards up on the wall, um, moved things around. We basically ended up taking the script he'd written 
and kind of using the, the general overarching story of that and then making that half the film. So that was one... Half the film. Yeah, so that, that film was much more like it took place uh, over the course of one night. It was very much like a... Have you seen the movie Good Time? No. So it's a it's this Safdie Brothers movie. It's it's a movie about basically a guy you follow him the entire night, and so that was kind of this kind of style. So you start at like six p.m. and like Finish in the eight a.m. or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that was the original idea. And we said, well, what if we take that and that's kind of flashbacks? And there's another story because there was some there was clear issues in that story of like the the, the bones of the story and where it was actually going and the thematic elements weren't just weren't there. So we were like, well, let, what if we kind of show all this? as like flashbacks from another story. Okay. Um, so once we had that idea, we kind of broke down um, the Save the Cat, and we basically said, there's a past timeline, present timeline. We're going to do a, a beat sheet for each timeline and then put them together. Okay. Yeah. So we did that, and then we kind of just literally divvied up scenes. We were like, I like these 10 scenes, you like these 10 scenes. You go right there. Yeah, you write that. And okay. that, that kind of corresponded with COVID. It was actually kind of perfect because it corresponded yeah. with COVID. When I went back to New Hampshire, we both kind of ended up over the course of like two weeks writing out our scenes um, and we put the draft together and that was the only draft and it was perfect. Uh, no, it was a monster and it was horrible. Um, <laughs> it was a monster, he said. <laughs> um, but we then just started iterating. So each draft he would take, so I think maybe I'm, I think he took the first draft, so he took that monster draft and kind of did it all in his voice. So he took everything and kind of right. kind of molded it so it felt like one cohesive thing. Then I came in and put my touch on it, and we kind of just went back and forth. We would do a notes call each draft, um, uh, kind of explain like we'd talk over notes yeah. and what we wanted. As we definitely got more, uh, did it more. We could kind of tell what the other person's ticks were. It's really interesting. You really get to know another person when you see how they write and yeah. kind of the wells they go back to and kind of how they handle certain situations. And so it was easier now that we're like into 30 drafts, it was way easier to just kind of be like, oh, this needs to be changed. I'm just going to do it. We don't even need to like have a conversation about this. And we got much better about being like, okay, yeah, we're going we're gonna to look at the... I, I, I made some changes we didn't talk about and that's fine. In this case, because mm -hmm. Johnny being the director, mm -hmm. are you still like in charge of the script and he's following your lead or since he's the director he's in charge of the script and you're following his so lead. we were co-writers on this so we we looked at this as like this is a hundred percent equal and then once the the script is over then it's all johnny and i will be on set i'll do whatever he needs me to do i'll you know do punch-ups on the script i'll give him ideas all of that but it's his it's his project you know it's his movie um but for writing the script a hundred percent equal Um, so there was no, I think, you know, we didn't really have any situations where it was, um, where, where there was an impasse, you know, it was usually like one of us was like, if there was something where we disagreed, usually one of us was less passionate about it than the other, yeah. or we would just debate it for like 45 minutes and then we'd figure it out. Yeah. And that it worked really well. I think we got to like 14 drafts, I think. And we said, this is done. Perfect. And then we kind of left it for like five months while we went to go get find funding. It was originally supposed to be on a four million dollar like as a studio film. Surprisingly, it's hard to get funding for a four million dollar movie. Surprisingly, fun fact. that's a fun, <laughs> fun surprising fact. fact for everyone. It's difficult. Four million. Uh, they just got four mil. <laughs> go and do it. Dude, so that I, didn't happen. I worked on an action like I worked yeah. on a Sony feature as an assistant location manager, mm -hmm. and I think we only have like a million and a half. Yeah. Like in the yeah. in the last few years. Because everyone is talking about, yeah, now you have cameras and the mm -hmm. internet and everything. So the studio is like, 
yeah, you have cameras yeah. and iPhones <laughs> and the internet, so like, yeah. no more money. So to no make money. Movies. Plus, it's like the the mon- the movies that actually make money at the theater. Especially Sony doesn't have a streaming service, so it's like the the movies that make money at the movie theaters are um, <clears throat> like very expensive to make. They're a hundred, two hundred million dollars. They're like you know, it's it's Marvel, James Bond, and like what else is there? Nothing, maybe and DC kind DC, of yeah. like. There's those three, and that's really all that's making money at the theaters. So, like, they need to kind of siphon money away from their smaller project, make those even smaller, just so they can throw, like, $300 million movies at the wall a year. Yeah, because it's not only the budget to make the movie. They also have to market that movie yeah. to, like, millions of people. So yeah. it, it gets really complicated. Mm-hmm. I love a low-budget production. Mm-hmm. Like, my, my feature documentary was made by, with very little money. But I still think there are some things that you need to have. And I'm talking from experience. Like, the sound of my film mm-hmm. was garbage. Right. Just because I did it, like, on my own. So mm-hmm. I was, like, shooting, and then I would set up a mic, and then yeah. it, it wasn't good. And that's something that I think going on for whatever my next feature is, I want to have a little bit more money. Uh, but it's always interesting to see how people find new ways to make mm-hmm. cool stuff yeah. with very, very little money. Yeah. And if you can at least finish the film mm-hmm. and you have some like it has to look a certain way mm-hmm. or what you could do is if you don't have the money find an aesthetic for mm-hmm. your film that matches the type of budget that you have yeah. like don't try to make a James Bond movie right. with $20,000 yeah, yeah like, exactly I think that is that is such a good point and I think that it's really easy to make movies look good right now. It's not really easy to make them sound good. And that is like the, it's still tough. You still really need a professional to do it. You can have good mics and you're still not going to get good sound if yeah. you don't have someone who knows what they're doing. That is, I think, why I've interviewed a lot of people on my podcast and they've all said basically sound and food. Those are the two things you don't skimp on. Those are the yeah. two things you pay a lot of money for because that's going to keep your crew happy and that's going to make people happy when they watch it in the theater. Yeah. I've been worried. I'm trying to do a movie for like $3,000, like super low budget. Like a feature? Um, yeah, a feature. Super, yeah, it's not going to happen, Sam. That's not true, man. There are many films. Have you heard it? You know the, the Bulletproof screenwriting podcast? Alex Ferrari? You know who he is? No. He makes I'm, like several yeah. $3,000 movies a year. Are they good though? I mean, I, I'm not saying this is going to win Oscars, but it's going to be a feature film that I can okay. say, you know, it's, it's, it's a credit. It is a learning experience. It's going to be all those things. Okay. And how I'll I'm doing to, it. I'll have to see it. I think $3,000, even if you're shooting in a third world country where your money can go along more, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that, so to be honest. The way I'm trying to do it, and I don't know if this is going to work, it's all taking place in the trunk of a car. So how are you going to give me an hour and a half in a trunk of a car? Have you seen the movie Buried? With Ryan Reynolds? Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. yeah. Actually, really, really, yeah. really good movie. Really effective horror movie that takes really place all movie. in it a trunk. It, it in was a not $3,000, I tell That's you that. true, but it was originally supposed to be $3,000, and about $1.5 of the $2 million budget that it had went to Ryan Reynolds' pockets. Well, there, there <laughs> we start. Like, How do you get a good actor that is mm-hmm. going to... I think we have to backtrack. So what's yeah. the purpose of the movie? If the purpose of the movie is you just want to get something done, you're going to put it up on YouTube, there is no marketing behind it, then yes, I'll have to see the script, see how you're going to keep me interested for mm-hmm. like an hour and a half. That sounds, sounds really interesting. I'll give you the $3,000 for you to make the movie if I can get an executive <laughs> producer credit and 50% of all the profit. All right, man. <laughs> 
There we go. We're checking right on there. it. But I, I think only for your sound mix, you're going to mm-hmm. spend like more than that. You, you could very well be right. You probably are very well right. Um, and that is, it's, you know, it's an experiment. It's an experiment. Um, and, but the original, I will say the original idea for Buried was that it was going to cost around $3,000. And then some agent saw it and it went to Ryan Reynolds. You know, it was originally supposed to be around yeah. that three the, to five. The script to, was know, really, the script on that movie is really It's pretty good. effective. It's really, like, I'm fascinated by that. This is kind of a tangent. It's not as much about production. It's more about writing. Because I think putting more guardrails on your writing is the best way to get good, like, better results. There's something um, they were saying on some podcast the other day that screenwriting is essentially a funnel. So your, your opening scene, you have infinite possibilities. After your opening scene, you have slightly less possibilities. After your next scene, you have slightly less. You have slightly less. You have slightly less. And it can be really overwhelming for people with that opening scene that they, they want to do James Bond. They want to do Marvel. They want to do one of these things. And starting with guardrails, so starting with a smaller funnel, I think is a really effective way to give you strong, uh, a strong result. You know, because I'm, I found that when I'm working on this project... I really have to think about ways to keep the viewer entertained. I really have to think about something because something has to happen basically every... Because basically there's like five or six actual slug lines in this script. It's basically she passes out, wakes back up, you know, or like, you know, or we, we hard cut to a few minutes later because it's not continuous. But you have to still split these films up into scenes because you can't just have it be one continuous thing. So you have to find things that are like, okay, for the next five minutes, she's talking to someone on the phone. Then after that, she's trying to um, fix her hurt leg. Then after that, she, the person who's in the front, in the front seat of the car is, is alive, and we thought they were dead, and so she's calling to them through the, 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 um, the partition. And so you have to kind of figure out these ways to, to divvy it into scenes. And I, to me, it's, it's led to like creativity in a way I, I haven't experienced in the past because I have, I'm forced to find a way to be creative in this tight space the size of this counter. Funny enough, one of my first short films that I did in film school, it was one of those weekend uh, exercises. Mm -hmm. It was a dude trapped in the trunk of a little car. Uh, And I found this cool location. It was like like a big junkyard. Uh And then I had my little crane movement and all that. The short was pretty shitty. Like, I don't want to show it to anyone. (laughs) But I totally agree with you. When you have these limitations... Mm -hmm then you have to come up yeah. with something good. Like, there's yeah. no, no other way. Yeah. So I'm interested to see what you do with that mm-hmm. one. Again, I'll find the money. <laughs> I'll find the cameras and the actors, and maybe I can help you shoot it. I still believe that the job of filmmakers is not to keep finding ways to make cheaper movies. Hmm. It's to find the way to raise the funds to make mm-hmm. Big movies. Yes, I, I totally agree. You you said something when you came on um, Screenwriter Survival Guide that uh, that really stuck with me, which is that like you don't want to make small movies forever. You don't want to make the super low budget movies forever. Um, some people are cool with that, and that's awesome. I think. I think if that's what someone wants to do, and they just want to make movies for like a thousand bucks because they can do whatever they want, they can get as weird as they want. Shane Carruth who's not the best role model anymore, but, like, he could do whatever the hell he wanted with his what movies. What movies did he make? Uh, Primer and Upstream Color. Those were his two movies. Primer is the one where they travel? It's a time movie? travel movie. And then yeah, Upstream in Color the is... and all that? Yes. It's in, like, a storage facility. A storage yeah. yeah. That's the... You're thinking of the right movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, you can do any... Like, those were, like, $3,000. Two, $3,000, those movies. Um, the first one. Uh, the first one was two to $3,000. Maybe that's what they spent, but when you th- you're not counting for the writer's time, the director's time, the editor's time. Like, when you 
put all of that into perspective, I mean, it's, it's a mute point to try to talk about who made the cheaper, the cheapest movie or whatever. Because mm-hmm. uh, then you have movies, Primer, even if they made it for 3000 to get distribution, to go to festivals, and then to put it on streaming yeah, services, right. yeah. then like your bill runs up and yeah. you end up spending like yeah. tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. So I, I agree with you. Like We need to find ways to be creative and mm-hmm. make these movies as cheap as possible so you don't stay in the waiting zone forever. Yeah, because like, I do think Shane Carruth is a good example here. Like He made these movies for, even if it was $100,000, still no money. That's nothing yeah. for a movie. Um, and then he made Upstream Color for slightly more. And then, you know, if he had been a good person and not, you know, everything that he was, he had a movie that was what starring... What happened to this person? I'm not 100% sure what it was, but it was something in the Me Too, Time's Up kind gotcha. of thing. He turned out to be a little bit of a sleazebag. Um, but he had a film that he was doing with, like, Asa Butterfield, and it was someone crazy, like, big. It was someone, it was millions of dollars studio budget. So, like, that's, like, what you're saying, where you go, you, you have to make, like, I could not go raise funds for After Death right now. We tried. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, we're going to keep trying. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think that's why we're doing the podcast, because it's, like, you have to have something that shows, oh, you can do this, you're good at this, and then you get something slightly bigger. And then you, I think there is a ladder. And as much as like, yes, it would be great if we could jump to the top rung. I don't think that's an effective way of like, I think it's much more effective to look at like, okay, what can I do now? What small thing yeah. can I start doing while also keeping the big projects in the background and exactly. running on the big yeah. projects? Yeah. That's my strategy because mm-hmm. I have seen big projects. I have, I have been a, a location scout and location uh, manager on big studio projects. Mm-hmm. And I have seen some of those people directing and producing and writing mm-hmm. where they came in and that's their second project. Yeah. And they went and wrote something, did something like indie, and it was good. It showed voice and they got lucky and then they get a deal and now they're directing like the next Amazon Prime like massive I mean, yeah. project. Look at look at Eternals. Like Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao, mm-hmm. who made Nomadland. Mm-hmm. Um no man, but she a great got movie. nominations and, and all that. Yeah, with Nomadland. Yeah, she was. A, it was a great, but it was indie, super low budget. I mean, you have Francis McDormand, so it was a couple million dollars. But like, um, she made. She was really good at that, and then they jumped her up too high, too yeah. quickly. Like, they, I, not not to say that she couldn't have made a great Eternals film in ten years, but not today. And I think yeah. that's like a perfect example of what you're saying. That's kind of the highest profile example right now. But that happens, I think, all the time. Whereas yeah. it's just like this, you want new, new exciting voices. But mm-hmm. then the flip side of that is you end up with something like I May Destroy You, who is also Michaela Cole is, is relatively new. And this, I believe, was her first show. Actually, I don't know if that's true. Don't hold me to that. Yeah, I haven't um, seen that show yet. But she's still rel- relatively a new voice. And she's still, like, you, you have these wild success stories and you have these wild failures. Yeah. Um, now, I May Destroy You isn't a Marvel show, also. It's still a pretty small, tight, personal story as well. Yeah, I don't know. I think that double strategy of doing the low budget while also working on the big things, that's the approach that I'm, I'm mm-hmm. taking. I'm working on Impact Theory because I believe where the studio is mm-hmm. going, and I'm trying to do my best to take the projects that they have there in development mm-hmm. And figure out how can I make this my own and then get it made and push hmm. from within a new studio. Even that studio is trying to pitch to big studios and we have yeah. projects and we're trying to get with like the major, major studios. Yeah. And I'm also staying up at night trying to figure out, okay, but I want to make my own movie yeah. that I want to make. Mm-hmm. And I'm working with you trying to mm-hmm. push After Death, 
which is a big, big uh, sci-fi, mm-hmm. high-budget TV show. That'd be expensive, yeah. But the, then we're also talking about, hey, Sam, how can we write something that I can shoot for like 50K and yeah. do it with a couple actor friends and mm-hmm. just shoot it? Because I have that desire, you know, yeah. to like go and grab my camera and like go mm-hmm. and shoot something. So I still don't know. Yeah. I still don't know how it's going to work out. Yeah. And lately, I'm just accepting the idea that you're not supposed to know how things are going to work out. Yeah, that, I, I'm in the same boat with you there, because I, especially with me making the decision to take a break from LA, and I, it's really easy for me to go down this hole of like, oh my God, I leave, I never, yeah. I lose all my now, connections, I never blah, 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 yeah. it all, it all tell, fails. Tell yeah. me about that, because like, you're mm. one of the people that I admire the most, you're always working, I'm surprised by the amount of like, pages that you're always mm. cranking out, and I think you should not leave. <laughs> from the career side of yeah. things but I also we all have personal things that mm-hmm. that are also going along with our career and maybe yeah. that's something we forget sometimes we don't know what that person that got the big show you don't know yeah. what their life has been yeah. in the last five years and even people that you see that are super successful they have their struggles mm-hmm. it's not like they just got lucky and they're talented out of this world they're aliens they're like gods mm-hmm. it's like no yeah. they're struggling with things and they're finding ways to keep creating yeah and, so tell me about that and, and your, yeah. only share whatever you want to share, but tell me oh, about I'm, that decision I'm, of I'm leaving. I'm totally happy. I, I, so I've always said since I first started this that I would only, if, I, if it came down to like happiness or my career, happiness all the way. I'll, you know, I'll fucking flip burgers if I have to. If, I, if it's going to make me happy and like doing this isn't going to make me happy, uh, whatever. Like I just don't think it makes sense. Like I, I don't think in my like logically i don't think it makes sense to like try to hustle and be a writer if it's not making you happy and i have not been living that i have been saying it but i've not been living it and i think i'm so close to this right now i still believe that i i get so much joy from writing and from talking about writing and from getting excited about sets and and like this makes me really excited right now like sitting here and talking about projects and like talking oh we're developing this project like oh we, we might be making this feature like all of these things they get me really excited but i i, I also but i've also been really like borderline depressed the last like six months i'd say and i think that has a lot more to do with just like loneliness of just like i'm someone who like it's I need to I need to be surrounded by people if I'm going to um if I'm going to be socially active like it's really easy for me to sit on my couch on a Saturday night and watch TV and get DoorDash, you know? Um if cuz I I don't I'm not super comfortable with like the oh I'm going to reach out to someone here and reach out to this person like um let's hang out. Um so it's much easier for me to be social consistently if I'm surrounded by people. That's been really hard during COVID. And so I think that's what's going on. I think what's going on is I've just been lonely. And that's been making it, like, that's been sapping all the joy out of my writing. It's been sapping all the joy out of my, out of my life. And going back for Christmas and then to Utah in the, the uh, early January this year, I kind of, I felt, like, alive in a way I hadn't felt in at least, like, six months. And on and off throughout COVID, basically whenever I was in L.A., I was feeling like shit. And I think what I like, need to do is I need to test that hypothesis and be like, okay, if I take this year and I just like do crazy shit, and I'm still probably going to write, I, I may take a few months off of writing and just like see if that what that does and then slowly introduce it back in. 
but I'm still hoping on doing my film this year. I'm still hoping on, you know, working on getting those after death podcasts. I, I might be doing something with impact theory. I'm not sure that's, that's all up in the air right now, but I'm still like still thinking about those projects, but I think I need to kind of test whether or not like being somewhere else, being surrounded by more people and being like more social is going to make me happier or not. Gotcha. And the best way to do that, I think, is to leave my status quo. It totally makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like it's not a matter of the city. It's just a matter of, like, you and, like, mm -hmm. your personal circumstances. I think it's a great idea to go now and try mm -hmm. yeah. things, try living in different places and all that. And hopefully you're going to find that fun and, like, that excitement mm -hmm. again. Yeah. And probably putting down your writing for like a few months mm -hmm. and then coming back to it is yeah. going to help you come up with new ideas. Yeah. I have a, a secret intention to keep you here and not let you go yeah. anywhere. <laughs> you said you're going to lock me in the not lock me in your apartment, not let me go home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think what's going to happen is that you're going to go wherever you're going, mm -hmm. and then you're going to see I, new ideas, and then you're going to start all I of a sudden. Yeah. One day you're going to wake up with like I got this idea yeah. because of something that happened yesterday. And now mm -hmm. you're going to start writing a new thing, uh, which is always wonderful mm -hmm. because, you know, like I, I agree with you. I have had the same feelings of feeling mm -hmm. lonely and all that in the last uh, year. It comes and goes mm -hmm. and depending on what you're doing. And sometimes I'm on a Saturday night and I, mm -hmm. I'm here just editing or yeah. I sit down and, and mm -hmm. watch a movie. And I'm a super extroverted, yeah. extroverted person, but mm -hmm. we all have those uh, moments, you know. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you're... Uh, thinking about happiness and your career and like you have to put your mm -hmm. happiness first for me if I wasn't pursuing filmmaking and making movies and all that I wouldn't be happy so if I gave it up at some point it would probably be because of some like big yeah. personal reasons and I still think I would find a way to get back to it mm -hmm. and I think because I have read what you have written mm -hmm. I think you have that in yeah. you because you cannot create amazing things like what you write without having that innate desire to like sit down and, and your imagination is something yeah. you cannot shut off. So I really, I think you're right. I think I'll get to like week two and be like, what am I doing with my free time? Cause I'm going to be like working. I'm working. I'm literally going to like base level work. Cause I'm basically going, I'm going to a ski resort in Utah to work as a lift operator, um, get a free season pass and basically free housing. And that's basically what I'm trying to do for the rest of this winter. Um, And so I think I'll probably get to week two and be like, oh, my God, I need to, I need to write again. No, maybe you, <laughs> you write a ski resort drama. Yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah. My parents were pitching me. When I told them this idea, they were pitching me like, oh, like a sitcom about lift operators. There's so like your parents are <laughs> pitching you <laughs> they're ideas? Pitching me. They're like, you could write a sick. They do that all the time. They're always like, here's your idea. I'm like, ideas are not a problem. It's not that I don't have ideas. <laughs> That's not the problem. But that is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. that's actually a good idea. Yeah. It's going to be hard to... You can only shoot in the winter. It is... Yes, that is true. You have to shoot in the winter. It's hard to do on a soundstage. A lot of exteriors. And they don't really make those shows that as much. Like the sit, like straight sitcoms, they don't really make those as much. So who knows? But, yeah. you know. Maybe we need a, a new sitcom. <laughs> so, Sam, if you could do anything, budget was not an issue. Hmm. And, like, you could ride, like, your masterpiece mm. what would you make that is a really good question um i'm now i know you didn't personally respond to this script but i am really excited about 
this one project I have, Indivisible. And it's basically, um, it's very roughly inspired by a podcast called um, It Could Happen Here, um, basically about the potential for an upcoming American Civil War uh, as kind of we get more polarized and, and split apart. And we, uh, I wrote a script that's, it's, um, you know, again, roughly inspired, but not in the legal sense. <laughs> um, it's called uh, Indivisible. And it's basically about a group of people in Phoenix, Arizona, that are trying to decide whether or not to leave as uh, the kind of militias crop up and kind of the social order breaks down. And I'm very excited about that project. Um, that if I got fifty million dollars today, I'd probably be like, let's give, a, let's get that, let's get that project done. No, it's going to be after death first. Yeah, right. After death, of course. Yes, I, I assumed after death was a, too bad of an answer. I couldn't give after death. Yeah, no, you could. You after have death, to. Would, of course, that's you of course have to say the first thing you on the docket. To make. Of course, yeah. after death's the first thing on the docket. So, why are you drawn to? Because these two shows are <laughs> post-apocalyptic. Everything went to shit. What draws you to that type of story? I don't know. I don't know what draws me to that kind of story. That's like two. That's I need more years of therapy before I can do that. I. Uh, um. I, right now, I see it in the world, which is depressing to say, and it's sad. And I really, really hope I'm wrong, but I kind of see it happening. Yeah. Where it's interesting because, like, my perspective is completely different. I know you. I, I wish I had. I wish my mind worked more like yours. Yeah. But I always. I think there's two types of people, right? And I think there's a type of person that like they see primarily the positive. When they when they see a situation, there's two paths. There's a way you can think of the negative, and there's a way to think of the positive. When they're faced with a new scenario, they think of the positive path. Um, and then there's another type of person that thinks of the negative path. I think I'm the person that thinks of the negative path, and you're the type of person that thinks of the positive path. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really trying to think more of the positive path because I think it's better to live there, and that's like part of the reason that led me to, to make this decision to go to Utah for a few months, of just being like, it's not, it's not going to kill me. You know, it's not yeah. gonna, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to be 50 all of a sudden. You know? um, but, uh, <laughs> but I think that for my writing, I think that is where I tend to go. Um, and when I've tried to write things that are lighter and more like happy and, and fun and like look at all the amazing things that could happen, it, they don't turn out as well. There's just something about like um, this sense of like – so with After Death, for instance, my, my dad fully believes we're going to live to 250. That's yeah. his thing. Yeah, and, and after, after Death is a show where yeah. everyone – looks young and they have been taking this mm -hmm. treatment that keeps them young and mm -hmm. they live yeah. hundreds and hundreds and yeah. hundreds of years and mm -hmm. this is the world overpopulated so it sounds really cool yeah and i can totally see what you're saying yeah with that premise i could say oh it's a world that is amazing yeah. everyone is beautiful and young yeah. and strong and it's super cool and now mm -hmm. we're gonna do amazing things yeah or you could do sam's version which is <laughs> dark shit it's dark the world is overpopulated yeah. and people are depressed because they get to live young and happy yeah. no they get to live young and beautiful forever but now they're depressed it yes so after that I think it probably did start as like dour and because it's like the negative path, but I do think I've kind of come around to it as like just that mortality might be good. Like it might be a good natural thing that we should do. So this kind of weird thing that's happened with COVID where kind of days turn to weeks and weeks turn to months and months turn to years. And it's this very weird kind of this flow. I, I, that's kind of, I, I really started to think of after death like that. Like what if that just happens for 300 years? Like that seems really depressing. Like, and at a certain time, especially since I think this whole movement into space and this kind of like 
Elon Musk space future is way further away than we think mm-hmm. because, you know, if you look 2050, he wants to launch the rocket or whatever, 2030 or whatever. That's what? 10 and, people. And, and then like, even they launch we, the colony and 10, 20, 50. If we get a million people up there, that's still like a fraction of the world's population, yeah. not even a fraction. Um, yeah. And for me, all of that is super interesting. Mm-hmm. I want them to go and do all yeah. of that and build everything. Mm-hmm. I don't think I want to go. Yeah. Uh, and also living over there it's not going to be that cool it's just yeah. you're going to be trapped in yeah. like this whatever thing where you cannot go outside and yeah. like go to the beach or something it's going to be so. yeah it's going to be difficult it's going it would be cool to visit for a weekend <laughs> if you could if you had like yeah. hyper hyper speed um i definitely think space tourism is cool like i would going to space would be slick but um yeah no i wouldn't want space that's depressing yeah. um but i think like just spending like at a certain time so there's it's an Isaac Asimov, I think it's an Isaac Asimov story that I heard when I was a kid. That is basically this guy dies and he's met with, he meets God. And God tells him, uh, okay, you can go anywhere in the universe uh, as much as you want, do whatever you want, enjoy. And so this, this guy, he goes everywhere. And after 20,000 years, he starts to feel a little bored. He goes back to God. He says, oh, I'm feeling a little bored. God's like, just go, just go experience more. Just you need to experience more. So he goes and he goes and experiences tons more and he goes back to god a hundred thousand years later he's like please I, I need can you can you let me die um because i don't i'm, I'm not feeling anything I, I there's nothing new to experience and then god says no i'm sorry i can't so the guy goes back out another hundred thousand years pass and the guy is like like can't stand it anymore and the man can't stand it anymore he goes like he's like okay god uh if you can't kill me and i i can't leave this place just send me to hell and god says well where do you think you are and I think that idea, like the idea of that immortality is essentially hell because it's forcing you, there's at a certain time you exhaust all, um, all possibility for like new experience and for, for new um, like uh, synapses to fire in your brain. And there's this thing, I think Peter Diamandis said it, that like by age 30, most people, not everyone, but most people, they're like 90% of their brain's activity is repetitive. So it's 90% of their brain's activity has been, is repeated. And that is scary. And that's by age 30. So imagine by age 300, 10,000. Like, so why do we still have this desire to like not die? I, my personal theory is that for tens of thousands of years, humanity had God. And in recent years, we've stopped believing in God, as obviously many people still do. But as a society, as our society has grown much more atheist and agnostic. And that if you look at the people who believe they're going to live forever, there's usually not a lot of like overlap between them and like religious people. And that if you, that human beings effectively cannot cope with our own mortality. If we try to actually face our immortality, we get depressed. And depression is the kind of how I handle it because essentially nothing matters. There is nothing yeah. but a void. We die. We die and then we're dead. And so my, my personal theory is that the phase, the craze of immortality is because so many people are facing the idea that when you die, you become dust. You simply cease to exist. The synapses in your brain cease firing. You are gone. Done. And so my belief, and I don't know if this is true, is that a lot of people believe, are turning to immortality as kind of a uh, salve for that. It's a new god that they're, that they're worshipping now. This like, like I'm a not going to die. Like a new big goal to keep yes. you excited about Yeah, it's like, living. well, I don't need to worry about death because I'm going to live forever. It's kind of like, I don't need to worry about death because I'll see all my loved ones again and be in heaven. But that's religion too. It gives you Yeah, that. no, that's what I'm saying. That's like the old way. It's like, I don't need to worry about death because I'll go to heaven and, and see my family. But now, now you realize like, I don't need to die. 
I don't need to worry about death because we're, it doesn't exist because it, all of my family will be alive forever. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're going to get to that that quickly. I don't think we, yeah, we're generations out from that, if it is. Yeah, true. we're yeah. many, many, many generations out from that. But I did hear to someone that you and I both know mm-hmm. who had a conversation with a very high-profile scientist, and mm-hmm. they're really close to discovering some things that hmm. it sounded very much like after death, to huh. be honest. Wow. So I needed to tell you about that. I'll tell you more later. Yeah. Uh, That's fascinating. And I'm not saying I'd be strong enough not to take the pill. And I, I am also not, I don't think 90 is the correct age for humans to die at either. I think if we can keep our bodies like virile and, and you know, young-ish and uh, be able to still do the things we want to do, I don't want to die when I'm 90. I don't yeah. want to die when I'm 100. I want to die it, when I'm 300. You know, I just yeah. think that, I think that immortality is not a good goal. I think it's like eventually we'll end up like that man in hell. Yeah. And well, yeah. for us now, 90 sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's almost like we all expect to live up to 90. It's like the mm-hmm. standard. Like if you die at 60, people are like, oh, he died so yeah. young. Like, yeah. Hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. making it to 30 mm-hmm. yeah. was awesome. Mm-hmm. Making it to 60 was unheard of. Yeah. It was like for kings yeah. and like very you're, well-protected people. You're right. And there is, there is an idea, like this is kind of what my, my dad believes, is that like there is no such thing as like an age you're supposed to die. It's just like as we cure more diseases, your body stops dying. And that's effectively what's causing death. And death is an illness is kind of how he believes. And maybe that's true. And maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we can all live for the 10,000 or 20,000. Yeah, I think that's probably to... too much. I think we're, at least in our lifetime, mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a significant increase where mm-hmm. maybe living to 120 yeah. is like... I would not be at all surprised if I lived to be 150. You know, like, I think when you start to get to 200, 300, I'm like, hmm... Now, I think there is the, the, the thing that my dad always says to this is like the, re, the progression, like when you get to 150, the science will have progressed to that point to let you live to 200. And so even like if when you get to 150 or even if when you get to 100, the technology doesn't exist to let you live past 120, it will, it will exist by the time you hit 120. And then it's a question of like lossless, like will it will allow you to still live like you're 50 when you're 120, when you're 160? And that's that's the question, and it's 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 a lot of questions we don't yeah. have answers to. I think before we get to that advance in medical sciences, mm-hmm. we're going to get to the point where you could almost download your consciousness or into a, yeah, a into, mix mm-hmm. of your personality into an avatar, like an AI that will take everything that you give it, and then it would almost clone a matrix code of you, and then it will keep learning. But even if you have that, yeah. it would only be useful if your loved ones who are still alive want to pay for that so they can still like FaceTime with you and like yeah. talk to a version of you that is digital. And then maybe if we get enough of those and then if you make it truly AI where it can interact and it, it can keep learning and keep interacting with other people, I think a version of that we might be able to see in the future. What's fascinating is there already is this chat app, this chat app you can download. And it is, I don't remember what it's called, but there is already a chat app you can download and you can give them someone's social media handle, someone who's dead. And if they're active enough on social media, it can comb through all of their, all of their posts and figure out how they talk. 
and it's not perfect, obviously, it's not a you know, perfect illusion, but you can actually text with your dead loved ones. Wow. Um, and you can you give it videos, you give it any information you have on the person, and it, it creates an AI. There's and a Black Mirror episode <laughs> yeah, that is very much like, like that. It's like Black Mirror, it's crazy. Yeah, and it's, it's real. I, I heard about it uh, today explained, the podcast that Vox does. Um, they did a whole like, special about it, about this man who's been talking with his dead wife or his dead fiance because he's just and and that's kind of creepy dude it's, like, it's a little freaky and i don't know if it's good it feels like it's just it's emotional porn almost like it's it's and it's, it's a way to, to not deal with grief yeah but why should you deal with grief if you don't have to that's true i guess you know you we're, we're looking at this from a very 2022 lens of like it or in our world lens where like where the emotions that humans deal with are natural and they're part of being a human and if we get to a point where those emotions are cured like a disease then that's true it's, it's a different it's like is it bad at that point point? and it gets into the question of like whether good and bad are relative and i believe that they are that there's no such thing as good or bad that it is all in the eye of the beholder so yeah that makes a lot of sense i think if it's your fiance you should move on so then you can find a new fiance. And that's like, the yeah. That's the question. Like how much by taking this small bit of happiness, how much happiness are you sacrificing? Yeah. But what if it's my grandmother? Yeah. You know, like my grandma passed away last year. Yeah. And every now and then, like I I yeah. hear her phrases and like right. or I'm cooking something or mm -hmm. I eat something that reminds me of her. Like yeah. what if I could shab with her that would be yeah. pretty cool she hated phones and technology and all that so, so that'd be a little be difficult <laughs> but it would be really cool and i think we're probably going to get to that point maybe in the world of after death we need to have something like that something like that well except like no one dies so you don't have loved ones that you're but they would have their loved ones i guess yeah like people like yeah i guess you're right because they would yeah that's true season two Same yeah this is season two feature yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's very interesting how we have all of these things that no matter how much technology we create, there is still a big piece of being humans that we completely don't understand. And mm -hmm. I think that's where I have been in the last few years. You know, I, I grew up as a Christian ev evangelical in the church. Mm -hmm. Like my life was completely based on, on that belief. Yeah. And then all of that changed. And now I'm left with not this belief hmm. it's just i understand things better hmm. to the point where you can understand okay this explanation it's just not it, it cannot hold everything that we yeah. now know right and i think once you see that you cannot unsee it yeah but i still have so much wonder and awe and i have no idea what we really are or where are we really supposed to go mm -hmm. or anything like that that's a very interesting uh topic that I think so many movies have touched yeah. on. You have the Matrix, which is one of my favorite movies yeah. of all times. And even the new Matrix, have you have you seen the new yeah. one? Yeah. I wanna know we can do that, take this offline, but what no, do you no, think no, of the let's Matrix? Do it. Like uh I liked it. You did? Yeah. I did like it. I wasn't going in expecting a whole lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. So for me if I wanted to like it mm -hmm. and then when I watched it I was like, this is actually really interesting. Yeah. So what they did is they took everything that happened before and they just said, okay, that happened, but now we're going to give you a new alternative version mm -hmm. where you think that happened, but it was not really happening. And it was like some layers deep into this fake life that, uh, that Neo was living. And then you have the fact that most people want to stay 
in that loop or this like predetermined hmm. reality yeah so they can feel secure and they don't want to know that there's other things outside of that yeah. and it, it sounds simple and kind of cliche, but I'm pretty sure you can think about a few people in, that you know that they actually rather live yeah. within these parameters of thinking that this is safer or there's nothing you can do about X, Y, and yeah. Z, or this is my situation, this is the only mm -hmm. thing that I can do, or like these people are evil and they want to control me, or yeah. I think... It's fascinating. Like, I heard this story about um, this, this study they did about menus that... Uh, about the, when you look at like a restaurant menu, you should have three or f three to five choices. If you have less, people will feel like they don't have a choice and they're being forced to eat what they want. But if you give them more than three or five choices, they will get overwhelmed and they won't they won't enjoy the eating at the restaurant because they won't they'll feel like they're missing too much. And people actually don't want free will in most cases. People want some level of free will. They don't want to be they don't want to be faced with the fact that they don't want free will. They don't want to be given the one choice in the menu, but they want to feel like they have free will and they're choosing between three to five predetermined things. They yeah. don't want to have an infinite number of possibilities of things they can yeah. choose. That's hilarious. The first time ever I went to a subway, <laughs> they asked me, what type of bread do you want? Yeah. And I was like, I, I was in shock for like 10 <laughs> seconds. I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, what do you mean? What type of bread? Because I come from Cuba. Because Cuba, where, yeah. You just yeah. have the one bread. Like, yeah. It's bread. Because it's a yeah, communist country. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. And there's a story about, uh, is it Gorbachev? Or some, like, one of the communist leaders. And he came to America for, like, some summit. And on the way back, he's like, I want to see America. I want to see a little bit. So he, they went, the, his driver brought him to a grocery store. And he went into the grocery store, and he got super depressed. He's like, oh, this U the USSR is over. Like, because there's, like, 15 different types of, like, breakfast cereal. And he was like, well, who decides how much to buy of each? And, and what flavors? And the, the store clerk was like, oh, the people decide. Like, the people want. And it's just, it's crazy. It's insane. That's, yeah. It's bizarre. It's, it doesn't really have anything to do with the, the uh, freedom of choice, but it is, it's a very interesting. Yeah. So what did you think about The Matrix? I had fun at it. I did not think. Now, here's some blasphemy for the Impact Theory community. I think The Matrix, the original Matrix, it's a fine action movie. I am not in love with that movie at all. The first um, one? The first one, yeah. Okay. I think it's, I understand, like, there's a lot of movies that, like, I understand I should appreciate them, and I, sh I do appreciate them, because they created all of these things. So that, you're 23, mm -hmm. so when the Matrix, first Matrix came out. I was, it came out in, what, 1998, 1999? Mm-hmm, 99. 99, so I'd be one. You'll be, you were one. one. So I did not see it. Yeah, that's, that's why. <laughs> yeah. That's why I think it's, it's it this, doesn't have yeah. that weight for you. Yeah. Because by the time you watched it, you watched it when you were like 15. Yeah, and I'd seen so many things that were copying it that those were my originals. Yes. And then like The Matrix was this like, well, it's just it's less old, of it's that. An yeah, it's an old movie. Yeah. So yes, I don't, I don't see what a lot of people in the Impact Theory community see in The Matrix. Um, not, and by yeah. the way, not in the Impact Theory community. In general. In, in the, the world. In the yeah. world and like in film lovers everywhere. I think it's the think same it's happens to me. I'll watch it. I never will not want to watch it. Yeah, yeah, but I could never expect that you're going to love that movie the mm -hmm. same way that I love that movie. Because yeah. when I watched it, it was like... Right. So when The Matrix came out, I was like 10. So imagine yeah. if, you, if you're a 10-year-old kid mm -hmm. and you have never seen like Bullet Time yeah. or like all the fight sequences. Yeah. Like when I watched that, it was like unbelievable. Yeah. And then you watch it like... Three years later, 
and then you start trying to pay attention to the philosophy mm-hmm. and it's amazing. Yeah. And then you watch it again when you're 19 mm-hmm. and it's like, for me, it's really interesting because The Matrix, when I first got to like really sit down to analyze it, I was Christian. Hmm. So to me, it was like this movie is like an allegory to Jesus as hmm. a savior. Yeah. So I saw it with those lenses. Yeah. And it was as everyone needs hmm. to be saved. So everyone needs like the word of God. Yeah. And you have the chosen one huh. who is Jesus Christ. And it was the perfect Messiah. Yeah. Uh, and I was looking at it through that lens. Yeah. And then I watched it again after I came to America. Mm-hmm. And then I started changing my, my beliefs. I watch it again. And it's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Right. It's the opposite. Yeah. Instead of like him, you had to break being, out of this. Yeah, yes, it's like religion is where where people are kind of asleep and mm. they believe all of this uh, dogma. Yeah, and then someone is going to break out of that, hmm. and you take Neo. Once you come, once you come into America and you get the more Western version of like the self and identity, then you see yourself as Neo. Huh. Then to me, it was oh, like... Oh, it's like you're in Zion. You're like coming out and you're in the Nebuchadnezzar, you're yes. in the Nebuchadnezzar now that you're in America. Yeah. Huh. And it's like, first, I would I, when I watched the movie, mm-hmm. it was like Neo was Jesus Christ. Yeah. Then I watched it again and it, no, no, no. I am Neo. You're Neo. I'm coming out of the Matrix <laughs> and I can have the power yeah. to see the reality. Yeah. And then you watch it again years later and you can take it as... Wait, capitalism or society or whatever mm-hmm. could be that matrix facade thing. Mm-hmm. And now you have to break out of not just being an individual. Now you have to break out of your own preconceived notions of who you're supposed hmm. to be. Yeah. So it's like three levels deep. Yeah. So like see how that that journey is completely different yeah. probably when you watched oh, it. Oh, of course. Yeah. I, it was an action movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's an so action movie. It's completely yeah. different. So I really love it. And, and I'm happy that I have that film. Hmm. You, another movie that we disagree is, <laughs> uh, your beloved Dune. Dune. Oh, you didn't oh. like Dune. Right. Yeah. I did not like it the huh. same way that you did. I, I like the movie a lot. I don't think I've ever had, a reaction to a movie as strong as your reaction to the matrix though. I don't think I, there's no movie I could talk about. It's like sit here and talk about like how deeply and profoundly it affected me and my journey as a human being, as you're talking about there, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I did like Dune. <laughs> yeah. My thing with Dune is it, it was like 30 to 40 minutes too long. Mm. I just think they needed I got that to completely. cut some out of it. Uh, I love, uh, the, the lead actor, Chalamet. So, yeah, Chalamet. That's yeah. how you say his name. I think he was awesome. I really yeah. liked him. Uh, I love Sandaya, but I think... <laughs> well, it, all two seconds of her. <laughs> and I think they just repeated the same shots I over see, and yeah, over. Yeah. And from the beginning of the movie, they already told me that that was going to happen. So it felt like it was never right. a surprise or anything. Yeah. So I, I was kind of sad that I didn't enjoy that as much. Mm. Jason Momoa, I thought that they were going to use him more in the movie, and then it was yeah, like yeah. very short, and he died so yeah. quickly. So I did not like it. Yeah. No, I, I, I understand all of those. I think there's something. So for me, you said The Matrix is this like profound, like because you saw it when you were 10. The movies I saw when I was 10 were like 
Harry Potter, like the later, the later I Harry love, Potter movies, I and love the, Harry Potter. like the Hunger Games. Those were kind of the foundational texts of film for me, yeah, which the, is maybe why I don't have oh this deep sound reaction to them. He just said that the Hunger <laughs> Games is the foundation film text of his life. Harry Potter more, but yes, oh that may be why I'm not so deep about say it. Say Harry yeah. Potter, don't ever say The Hunger Games again anymore. The Hunger Games is a good movie. The Hunger Games is a very overrated movie. The why, so the, the kind of YA movies, like they're, they're, they're all the same. They're very like yeah. plot, they're very predictable. They're, very, they're, they're shot the same way, they're scored the same way, they're acted the same way. I thought The Hunger Games, it tried things differently. I think they're... The movie, if you look at it, and you, especially if you look at the first one and then you watch the the subsequent ones, yeah. they're 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 very different in their style and aesthetic. Um, the first one, I think Gary Ross was a director. I don't know, someone yeah. someone Ross. You watched the, the the only thing I love about the Hunger Games is Jennifer Lawrence. Like mm. I love yeah. Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> I think she's amazing. She's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> she's an amazing actress. But it comes down again to the timing, I think. Mm -hmm. When did you watch The Hunger Games? That was probably like 13, 2012. I was probably 13, 14, something like that. Yeah. When yeah. I watched it, I was like, I first no, and you're came right. to I, America. I don't think The Hunger Games is an amazing film yeah. by any stretch of it. For me, it was like it was like a midnight showing I got to go see with my dad. You know, it was like oh. so I got to stay up late. You know, I got to like do all this stuff. 13-year-old like, Sam <laughs> going to the movies at 12. I was super excited That's by that. Hilarious. Back when they still did midnight showings, I'm very sad they don't do those anymore. Those That's were amazing. That's funny. Um, One good thing about communist countries, like we would watch movies at any time. Yeah. I remember watching the set Seven Deadly Sins when I was like six or seven. Mm. Yeah. Which is, if you don't know, it's a very like hardcore David Fincher yeah. like, serial killer movie yeah. with like not. Oh, you're saying Seven, right? Yeah. It's seven, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they I was like, a, I don't know this David Fincher movie, Seven Deadly Sins. And then I was like, yeah, yeah seven. That, that was the, yeah, like yeah. the Spanish yeah, yeah. name that <laughs> oh, they it gave called, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so they. <laughs> If you call a movie seven yeah. in Cuba, people would be like, "What? Why?" Talking about? <laughs> so I remember watching that movie and having nightmares for yeah. a very long time because I was seven years old. Yeah, when I watched that. Yeah, so, I can imagine. <laughs> it's yeah. a scarring movie. Yeah, that's incredible. Like the the way movies can, like I can almost see my life by the movies that I watch and yeah. when I watch them, huh. and I can go back and like one of my favorite of all times, Terminator Two. That's a great movie. Amazing movie. But probably when you watched that, it was like already like an no, Terminator, piece of so, crap. No, there's, there's a couple of movies. I think for me, the ones that really like stood out to me are the ones that like my parents would like my, my, I would get to stay. It was usually my experiences of like I would get either to go to like a midnight showing or I'd get to like stay up late on like a school night and go see them with my parents, you know, or watch them at home. So like the ones like the kind of 80s, 80s-ish movies that kind of really stuck out. I think Terminator 2 is 90s. But yeah. um, uh, or T2 and Aliens. Those, those, those are the two that I still like respond to in ways that I don't respond to the other ones. Um, to me, they're still, they're still not like Harry Potter was my shit. That was like the thing I got really excited about. I had no idea you like <laughs> Harry Potter. I love Harry Potter. If you can look over there. I know. Like, I know. You got, your, uh, you got your literary yeah, ink. Yeah. That's my, my featured dog literary ink is basically like tattoos about mm -hmm. harry potter right yeah so i love harry potter i just watched the like the reunion thing oh yeah i haven't HBO. seen that one yeah yeah you're you yeah. need to watch it you're gonna <laughs> love it because they go back and they show like everything for me if, i mean you make a harry potter movie and that's it you can like okay i can say bye like i i <laughs> I, I think those movies are incredibly fantastic beast seven no fantastic beast <laughs> i cannot stand so it. so you gotta just reboot the franchise that's what you're saying no uh 
I think it, it's interesting. We're getting to the point where the impact of a film is hugely correlated to the timing in your life where you watch it. Mm-hmm. So if you're watching a movie that is really well made and you watch it in your like teenage years, mm-hmm. I think it will create an impression in your life like nothing else. Yeah. So it's kind of like music. Like the music that you listened to when you were 12 or like 15 is the yeah. best music yeah. in the world. It doesn't yeah. matter if the music you listen to, like the music I listened to, was shit when I was 12 to 15. But now I just love shit music, and that's just like the best music in the world to me is like Katy Perry, and that's because like that's what closeted Sam was listening to at at thirteen years old. That's hilarious, but you're absolutely right. And when I was thirteen, I was listening to Christian reggaeton. Yeah, Christian reggaeton. That's still the best music. Can you imagine? (laughs) And I would still play one of those tracks, and I have like. Two or, my, two or three of my best friends yeah. that we grew up together in that time. That's the shit. Like, we played that, and it's, like, yeah. best music ever. So that's nice. hilarious that you were listening to Katy, Katy Perry. So oh, yeah. now that you say Closeted Sam at 13, uh-huh. tell me a little bit about that whole thing of, like, if you want to get into it. Sure. But like coming out? Coming mm-hmm. out, and then how that works in mix with your career and with personal life. Because... That's something, and to be honest, like, I don't know much. You didn't know I was gay until, like, until two months like, ago. Yeah, we were no, like, well, no, more than that, that. More than it that. It felt like yeah, two months had, ago, but, yeah, like, I had no it was idea. we were working on the, the pitch deck, and mm-hmm. you were like, what kind of girls are you into? I'm like, not uh, girls. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. Yeah, for me, it's like, Sam, it's just a person. Yeah, so. yeah no, I, yeah, I get that. I don't, I don't come off. I don't have, like, a stereotypically, like, mm-hmm. any gay kind of stereotypical um, <clears throat> kind of mannerisms um yeah i mean i don't think my parents were super my, my mom was desperate for gay kids like if 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 nurture had anything wait, wait, to do, wait, wait. that like she wanted us i, I i'm being Why? facetious a little bit oh i don't know she want like she just wanted like she like she that's it. i thought you were I'm gonna say sure your why. mom was devastated no 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 she was she would have loved it if we were all gay um so wow. me she got two she out of five she got two so that's good she got two gay kids um but so yeah, so I wasn't, like, I definitely had, like, a very supportive family. The only, like, I've had to, I had an awkward conversation with my grandfather because he believes that gay, because he's a priest, Catholic priest, or a Presbyterian priest or something. Mm-hmm. And he believes that, you know, being gay is against the Bible or something. So that was an awkward conversation. But I didn't have any, like, negative, like, conversations. I was very, kind of my thing growing up was I was very afraid that, um, like, I, I kind of knew I was gay from the beginning. Like, I didn't, I, there, was, there was maybe, like, six months after I started, like, you know, figuring my stuff out that I was, like, maybe I'm straight. And then I was, like, oh, no, no, no. I keep fantasizing about guys. I'm not straight. Um, and I think what was difficult for me was I was very worried. My thing about coming out was that, like, all of my straight friends were going to think I was into them. Um, and that they wouldn't want to hang out with me because of that. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of a big kind of hurdle for me and then I also like I dated girls in high school even though I kind of knew I was gay um and I didn't want to like so I came out as bi first so at the end of high school when I was like in senior in high school I kind of came out to my friends came out to my parents didn't come out to public and uh that I came out as bi because I didn't want to kind of like re I was very worried about like I was very image obsessed and like didn't want to come off as like oh I've never dated anyone you know, so like I dated girls and I wanted those to still count 
which was the stupidest thing ever. That's something you don't realize in high school is stupid. But once yeah. you get out of high school, you're like, that's so fucking dumb. And then, so I came out as like bi. And then in college, uh, I, that was the first time I was like out to everyone. I just like, you know, when I went to Ireland, I was like, didn't know anyone. So I just came out to everyone. And about six months into that, I was like, oh, why am I pretending to be bi? <laughs> so I just like, told my friends, like, yeah, I'm gay. I was very, I'm very lucky because I don't present as gay and my family was all very supportive. Um, so I, I can't speak to people who, who don't have that situation um, and how that coming out experience will be. But for me, I know that it was when I just, that coming out was the worst part. And actually not even coming out, the pre-coming out. Like, everyone responded. The, the thing I found when I told people is they just didn't care. <laughs> it was like, they really like, maybe they were like, maybe my parents, I'm sure my parents were putting on airs that they didn't care. They were really trying not to care, but it really seemed like they just did not care. They had no, like my, I told my dad and he was like, okay, like, okay. And like, he could tell there's something on my mind. So he asked me what was up and I told him and he was like, okay, yeah, what's up? So what's up or whatever. So like, there's de- like, I was just very surprised that people didn't care, but that's again because I had really supportive yeah. parents and don't come off as gay. So yeah. I and don't. And I think know. they care. It's just that they care more about you than right. and to love you and yeah. like. And I think at least I don't know about my dad. I don't think he has a problem with it. But um, my mom is like desperately wants more gay kids. She it was made her day. I'm sure. Like when I told her. So like, um, but yeah. So yeah. So that's been my experience. And you know, if if someone's struggling with that, you know. Uh, it's hard, but it, even if you do have unsupportive parents, you, you will feel better doing it. it. At the end of the day, afterward, uh, it, it seemed like it was the biggest thing in the world when I was dealing with it, and after, uh, it feels like nothing. It feels like this little thing in my past. I don't think about being gay maybe once a week. <laughs> like, uh, I really don't think about it. I don't think of my relationships as gay relationships. I really don't think like that. So if you are struggling with it, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It really, you just are a person, you're just a normal person. Thank you guys for fluffing up my ego and listening to my episode of High Level. Please remember now, if you have some more time, to hop over to the High Level feed and listen to Axel's episode of Screenwriter Survival Guide, which is now available over there. There will be a link in the show notes if you uh, don't want to search for it. Even if you don't have any time right now, please go take a listen. It will be worth your time. And in the meantime, the usual housekeeping, if this guide is providing any value to you, please, guys, give us a rate and review. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we can improve on. And follow us so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including our upcoming second season, which I'm very excited about. Until next time, guys, don't just survive, thrive.